And I said, hey, I'm going to do a, a talk. It's called the, the Pastor and Pot. And, and everybody laughed. Everybody laughed. And for the next, you know, like 12 hours before the actual breakout session, people would come up to me and say, hey, how about the deacon and the doobie? How about the Trinity and tree? How about the Bible and the blunt? And man, I, I have, I just over and I, I swear I've heard them all at this point. And, uh, and I was thinking, this is just a big joke. No one is going to show up. But, but when it came time for that breakout session, it was basically uh, a plenary session. Everybody was there, not even standing room only. People lined up outside uh, to listen to it. And I realized, wow, there's just not much information out there for pastors and, and they need it. They need it. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Today in our Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to talk with Dr. Todd Miles, interestingly, wait for it, about a biblical approach to marijuana. There are so many jokes, but I will refrain. <laughs> well, after that, we'll have a guest segment to commemorate Constitution Day. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. A new Texas law bans abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected, which typically occurs between five and eight weeks into a pregnancy. The bill took effect on September the 1st, and the Supreme Court recently voted 5-4 to deny an emergency appeal from abortion clinics. Dr. Keithley, personally, I think I see this for sure as a good thing. I suspect you do as well. But in general, what is your reaction to the bill, and why should we be pro-life, especially as Christians? This is an interesting bill and one in which uh, lawyers are having a heyday talking about how uniquely written it is. And so I can't speak to that. Um, but I think one does not have to be in agreement with all of the details about the bill in order to support what the bill is intending to do. And that is, it is intending to support life in principle and in general. And I do think that we do need to be pro-life. The fetus in the mother's womb I do not think that it is potential life. I think it is life with potential and, and that we should understand that principle that each and every baby conceived in the womb is created in the image of God and as an image bearer has intrinsic rights that are not given to the child by the state. Therefore, the state has no right to take away those rights. There are complicated questions related to this bill, particularly with the fact that it's only six weeks and you have a, a, uh, issues uh, that related to those situations in which the mother's health is at risk. And I am more than happy to have that conversation and work those things out in detail. Quite honestly, I do think that we need to recognize that if Roe v. Wade is either overturned are if uh, there are such amendments and changes to the court's understanding of Roe v. Wade such that, for all intents and purposes, it is rendered null and void. We need to understand this does not mean that suddenly abortion will be outlawed in this country. All that means is, is that the issue will go back to the states. I consider that a good thing, but we need to understand that if it does go back to the states, 
uh, that we're not at all sure that the situation will look very much different than what it does today. The states that are very strongly pro-abortion will continue to be so, and I, I can name those states that will be like that. You know which ones they are. Those states that will tend towards being pro-life will do so. This will be a conversation that will have to be held at a local level. As an American, I affirm that. As a Christian, I'm encouraged by having that opportunity to make the case for life in the public square. And that will be a good thing. The movement to legalize marijuana is gaining steam and it's causing Christians to rethink their assumptions about marijuana and a number of other substances. So how then should we think about marijuana and the cannabis plant? So in today's Christ and Culture Conversation, we're joined by Dr. Todd Miles, uh, whose new book, Cannabis and the Christian, addresses this very question. Dr. Miles is professor of theology at Western Seminary, and he joins us today via Zoom from his home in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Miles, glad to have you joining us today. Oh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be on, so thank you. Let's begin with the obvious question. I suspect I might know a little bit of the answer due to the fact that you live in Oregon, but what motivated <laughs> you to write a book on cannabis? I'm happy to say that the origin story is more about Washington than it is about Oregon. I mean, I need to put Oregon in a good light whenever I can, and it's getting harder and harder to do so as, as time goes by. Uh, Portland is, is right across the Columbia River from uh, Vancouver, Washington, and uh, Washington was actually one of the first states, one of the two first states to legalize recreational marijuana use. Almost the day after, I, I, I think it was literally the day after it was legalized in Washington, we had a person in our church, I, I serve as an elder at our church, come to us and say, hey, now that's legal, would it be okay if I went across the river and, and, and smoked some pot? And uh, we looked at each other, the pastoral staff, and, and, and we realized we, we can't just give the typical answer of, well, of course not, it's against the law. We had to start thinking like Christians on, on this issue. Fast forward a few months later, I had put together some thoughts. I was speaking at a pastor's conference where I did an annual breakout session on theological and ethical hot topics for pastors, you know, things that they might need to think about going forward. And, and I said, hey, I'm going to do a, a talk. It's called The, the Pastor and Pot. And, and everybody laughed. <laughs> everybody laughed. And for the next you know, like 12 hours before the actual breakout session, people would come up to me and say, hey, how about the deacon and the doobie? How about the trinity and tree? How about the Bible and the blunt? And man, I, I have, I just over and I, I swear I've heard them all at this point. And, uh, and I was thinking, this is just a big joke. No one is going to show up. But, but when it came time for that breakout session, it was basically uh, a plenary session. Everybody was there, not even standing room only. People lined up outside uh, to listen to it. And I realized, wow, there's just not much information out there for pastors and, and they need it. They need it. And since then, I've been asked to speak on it all over the West uh, at this point. Well, I have to admit that as we were planning for this podcast, there may have been a joke or two told among our staff. <laughs> Uh, and, and you're right about how this has fallen into this gray zone. I mean, here at the seminary where Dr. Quinn and I teach, illegal drugs are forbidden, 
and we are a teetotaler school, no alcoholic beverages. And so when we were in Denver at a meeting and we stepped out and there's the kiosk uh, offering marijuana, we said, you know, this falls between the cracks of what is prohibited by our covenant. Now, the good news is I just want to hasten to say that we, we, we didn't buy any uh, marijuana. I just, <laughs> I just want to make that clear. But it does raise the question, why is marijuana legalization a growing movement? Why now? What's happening? Well, I, I think the reason is because people like it. And, and uh, there's, there's all sorts of strategy that has gone into the marijuana movement. There's a very powerful marijuana lobby. It, it usually begins uh, with medical marijuana. I've heard the, the strategizers will say that if we can get you know, someone's Aunt Bertha to think well of medical marijuana, then basically the camel has his nose in the tent, so to speak. It's uh, the, the, the door is, is wide open, and, and that's really the strategy. I, I don't want to paint it in a completely terrible light because because I do think that the cannabis plant is is part of God's good creation. It can be and is often misused, but I do think that there are certainly right now medical benefits to the cannabis plant. Uh, there are a number of drugs that have been isolated and are prescribed and have been beneficial to people uh, using both THC and CBD. So I think that's how this this whole thing has gotten started. Uh, but you know, for, for for the longest time, at least on the West Coast, and you know, that's like hippie central for a long time. I mean, I grew up seeing marijuana legalization booths and petitions and, and such. And and I, I think the main reason is, is that people liked it. People like getting high. I, I write about this in the book, but in doing some research, I, I went into one of the ubiquitous cannabis dispensaries here in Portland. I mean, th there's more cannabis dispensaries than like 7-Elevens here. And I asked the clerk, who, who was very helpful and, and, and very kind, uh, I, I said, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but is there any reason to smoke pot recreationally other than to get high? And she just laughed at me like, <laughs> no, of course there's not. That's, that's why people smoke recreationally. Now, others will say that it, it, it helps with their nerves or anxiety or pain or, or whatever. But at that point, they're self-medicating. And I think that has other discipleship questions that need to be asked uh, other than the, is it okay for a Christian to get high for pleasure? Todd, I want to I want to get to kind of how you make a biblical case for or against or how you just sift through that in just a minute. But before we do that, Dr. Keithley asked the question, you know, why are we seeing this momentum towards this culturally? But at the same time, I'm curious to know you being on the West Coast, how are you finding this conversation in the churches right now? Before there was legalized recreational use, uh, th there were things like pot churches that were springing up across California, and they were basically just marijuana dispensaries under a religious exemption. And uh, so, so there's that kind of thing. Um, if if you would have explored more in Colorado, there there would have been a number of churches that use marijuana to aid in their worship. Now, if if you go and look at their doctrinal statements, it's it doesn't even sound anything like a Christian church. But there's that. I mean, I think there's a there are a lot of people who will equate you know the the moderate use of marijuana with say that the moderate use of alcohol. Now that that just begs the question as to whether there is such a thing as the moderate use of uh, of marijuana. But I mean, those are the kind of questions that that are being asked of, of pastors now. And I think there are a lot of people who who are using both recreationally, but but certainly medically. Some of them have it out in the open where there's light and, and accountability and 
Um, and, and others are just using it secretly, hoping to keep it secret. There's probably some shame that, that accompanies that. And that's never a good idea to violate conscience. Um, but they would say that, that it works for them. And I think the sooner the church can get out in front of this and give good information, the better. So you brought up the alcohol argument. So most people, at least in our context, if we were to ask them to make a case for or against marijuana, they would probably take what they would see as New Testament precedent with respect to alcohol. How, how do you see it, not, not just New Testament, but across the canon of Scripture, how do you make your case with respect to how we approach marijuana? Both alcohol and marijuana are intoxicants, and so there's some commonality there. I do think we have to be careful not to just substitute marijuana for alcohol or wine every time we see it. You know, wine is is treated variably in the scriptures. It's celebrated. Uh, it, it's part of religious rites, like the Lord's Supper, for example. We're going to go sideways pretty quickly if we substitute marijuana into the uh, Lord's Supper ordinance. I, I mean, that's just practical. But hermeneutically, it, it would be a mistake just to say, okay, whenever I see wine or any kind of alcohol, I, I'm just going to substitute marijuana and go from there. Uh, we have to do better work than that. Helpfully, the, the Bible doesn't just say, don't get drunk, because I said so. I, God could have said that and would have had every right to do so, but he doesn't. Helpfully, he explains why he forbids drunkenness. I kind of worked through the scriptures and, and categorized it three areas. Drunkenness impedes cognitive ability. It impedes physical abilities, and it impedes moral judgment. And for those reasons, the Bible forbids drunkenness. God forbids drunkenness. Now, the marijuana high, intoxication through marijuana, demonstrably does all three of those things. And so for that reason, I'm comfortable saying it is a sin to get high on marijuana because it's the same in those three regards as getting drunk on alcohol. At times, I get pushback on whether drunkenness is actually a sin. But, but for the most part, people recognize yeah, it's pretty straightforward, you know. Paul said, do not go drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So, so sin, um, sin to get high across those kind of three categories, as you mentioned, does that include medical prescription thereof, or is, is that kind of bracketed out? I would bracket that out depending on the context, uh, because normally when it comes to the medical use of mind altering drugs, the church Christians have been more open to their use. You know, a, I mean, heavens, anytime you go in for major surgery, they're going to anesthetize you. Well, <laughs> that's, um, and, and they're probably going to give you some sort of opioid or some sort of mind altering pain medication just to, so you can cope with it. I have no moral problems with that at all. Uh, you know, contextually, I think that's okay. Now, we're in the middle of an opioid addiction epidemic right now. And maybe one of the benefits of the legalization of medical marijuana in the majority of states in the country right now is people are beginning to ask, because there's a stigma associated with marijuana use, they're beginning to ask, hey, just because this was recommended for my health, maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe it's not the best thing. I think that's thinking like a Christian. Um, we probably should have been thinking that way about opioids. So to distinguish between a moderate use, perhaps, of alcohol and drunkenness, what kind of distinction do you make? What kind of definition do you use for drunkenness? There are state alcohol level in the blood uh, limits. Uh, so, so that's helpful uh, for driving while impaired, those sorts of things. Again, I would go back to those three categories before that loss of moral judgment, that, that loss of physical control, that loss of, uh, of cognitive ability. 
And it seems evident to me that in scripture that there is a place for the moderate use of alcohol where, where such things are, are not taking place. It gets tougher with marijuana because, you know, smoking is usually the, the avenue of choice for partaking of marijuana. And the reason for that is because it gets into your bloodstream so quickly. And, and so it's, it, it's really difficult to talk about the moderate use of, of marijuana from a recreational standpoint, because the whole goal for the most part is, is intoxication. And so people choose that path, usually smoking, to get that into their bloodstream quickly. Moving a little over to maybe some of the technical issues here in North Carolina, marijuana is not legal. And yet, uh, in the town of Wake Forest, we have a store that's a CBD store. And the first time I saw that, I thought, well, what in the world is, is that selling marijuana? What, what is the difference between THC and CBD? Uh, for someone like me, I just didn't know the difference. What is yeah. the difference? Well, these are the kind of questions that need to be asked so people can, so, so Christians can get educated on this, so, so we can bring to bear what, what God's word has to say on this. So THC and, and CBD are, are components of the cannabis plant. Uh, they are what we would call endocannabinoids. That is, they slot right into the cannabinoid system, which is how the, the brain and, and the nervous system and other parts of your body talk to each other. THC is typically the component that people really want because that's the one that makes you high. That's the one that, that brings about this washing of your brain with, with dopamine, which is how we feel pleasure. It's CBD is a different component. And depending on, on who you talk to in terms of the convention and the vocab, CBD is, is typically not understood to be psychoactive. That is, it, it does not intoxicate you. Now, technically, we would probably say it is psychoactive, but, but it is not intoxicating. It's not intoxicating. And so all of my concerns with regard to the recreational use of marijuana, they, they really don't apply to, to CBD. Pharmaceutical companies have isolated CBD and, and have put it into drugs that the FDA has approved for various maladies, and it appears to, to work pretty well. There's one drug uh, that is CBD-based that, that is used to, to fight uh, seizures in, in very hard forms of uh, childhood epilepsy. So there are some, some, some promising benefits from the cannabis plant, and, and I suspect that, that as more and more research is done, we're going to find more uses for this. The, the cannabis plant's highly complex with many different components. But the reason why, why medical marijuana might be illegal in a state, but in, in some states where that's the case, CBD would be legal is because CBD is not intoxicating. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence for all the great things that CBD does. The science is way behind on that. <laughs> um, and uh, some people, I've talked to a lot of people, some people found it to be not helpful at all. Uh, others swear by it for their arthritis, for example. Um, and, and other things. I, I, don't, I, I don't really know what to make of that. As a, as a pastor of a church, I'm not as concerned about that because it's, it's not intoxicating. Well, that's a very helpful distinction. So where do you see the discussion going from here? Well, I think that uh, in states like yours, it's probably just a matter of time before medical marijuana is legal, and then just a little bit more time, quite frankly, before recreational marijuana is legal. I suspect that there are going to be more and more claims made for the medical benefits of marijuana, both 
THC and CBD and, and other uh, components of the cannabis plant. Um, I, I suspect that at least initially, those will be wildly exaggerated and, and not helpful. But I, I also suspect that there will be some, some good things that, that come of this. I am concerned because marijuana has, has risks associated with it. And the marijuana lobby is, is so powerful. It has a very compliant and complicit popular culture attached to it, that there is a lot of misinformation out there. And there is a lot of suppression of good information about the risks of marijuana. I think the sooner that we can educate people regarding those risks, the better. It's just a matter of time. I, 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 I tend to think of the Pacific Northwest as like the Petri dish of postmodern crazy thought. Um, and, and some crazy, stupid ideas don't work and some crazy, stupid ideas do. And then they eventually make their way across America. Todd, you mentioned a few minutes ago and kind of alluded to it just then uh, that churches should have been well ahead of this conversation, but we, we weren't. <clears throat> and probably even the opioid conversation as well. But here we are. You're on the West Coast. We're on the East Coast. You guys are deeper into this conversation than we are. But if we could look to you as a pastor who has had to now kind of weather this storm and engage this conversation for quite a long time, and it's making its way to our side of the country, what advice would you have for pastors and churches with respect to this conversation? I would assume that there are people in your church who are using marijuana, probably for medical uses, and, and then a lesser number, even now, even though it's not legal, uh, recreationally. The, the sooner that you can get good information into their hands and start treating this as a discipleship issue. Now, certainly because it's illegal, there's definitely a discipleship issue right there, right? You're engaging in something that the civil law in, in your state forbids. And, and that's there's no justification for that. The burden in my book is really to give Christians good questions that they can use to make wisdom decisions in a context where it is legal. Now, it is illegal at the federal level still. It, it is a Schedule One drug, but our government is on record as saying, Republican and Democrat alike, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, they're not going to enforce federal laws with regard to marijuana that are out of step with state laws. If it's if it's legal in the state, the federal government's not going to prosecute. Mm. So I'm not sure how effective a federal prohibition is. And if President Biden is to be believed, it, it's just a matter of time before that's removed from uh, as, as being a schedule one drug. You said uh, the sooner that we're able to get good resources into the hands of our people, Beyond your book, where would you? What are trusted resources that you would recommend? Oh boy, <laughs> there's a dearth of them. I would say that for sure. So in the book, I, I reference a, an annual survey that's called "Monitoring the Future." This appears to be the, the best annual report given for drug use in America, and and I think it would be really, really surprising to to pastors around the country. And then just paying attention to what CDC has to say about uh, about marijuana. I, I, I know that CDC is, is a controversial, uh, not necessarily to be trusted organization right now because of all the politics of uh, coronavirus and the vaccine. But the, the FDA, all of the various health organizations have strong warnings about uh, marijuana use. 
I mean, teen marijuana use demonstrably impairs and reduces the development of your brain, and you just don't get it back. I mean, it's a horrible idea uh, for young people to, to use marijuana. And, and, and another bit of information that you just don't hear is that strong link between psychosis and mental illness with marijuana use. And, and again, the, the, the evidence is just growing and growing and growing that particularly those who have a family predisposition, a, a genetic predisposition toward mental illness, that the cannabis use will um, enhance or, or quicken or speed along the onset of that mental illness. And you talk to mental health officials and they will just, well, first off, if, if you have a mental illness, they'll just assume that you're using but they will tell you, do not use, do not use marijuana. And, and that's hard because in the popular culture, the idea is that marijuana use will be good for mental illness when really it just exacerbates it or brings it about. That is so helpful pastorally. And of course, none of us want to jump to conclusions, but I would have never thought as a pastor that if I encounter people with obvious mental health issues, I would never think to immediately suspect pot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, that's just fascinating. Yeah. And, and pastorally, you might not want to just assume that they're using, but you would right. definitely want to warn uh, them, do not use marijuana uh, because there will be people who tell them that, that this will help mm -hmm. ameliorate or this will help lessen the effects of, uh, of your mental illness. It'll make it more livable, that sort of thing, when, when in fact the exact opposite is most likely the case. You made a reference to the damage uh, that marijuana use can do to a developing teenage brain. Can you elaborate on that just a little more? Yeah. So again, demonstrably, regular marijuana use, not like smelling some secondhand smoke, not like trying it out, you know, but, but regular use, which is usually like three to four times a week is what regular use is defined by. It has been demonstrated to show that it impedes the development of your brain. Now, the problem is, is that whereas for women, their brains are usually fully developed around age, you know, 21 or so, the, the male brain doesn't finish developing until like 25, 26, 27. Um, and the tragic thing with this is that if development of your brain is interfered with through THC marijuana use, you don't get it back. You, you don't get it back. I saw one study where a, a doctor made the claim that, that she had found a six to eight point drop in IQ through marijuana use. And when the average IQ is 100 and the range goes from 80 to 120 of healthy people, eight points that's a lot. That is a lot. And you don't get it back. Now, once your brain is fully developed, you can get high, smoke pot. It's, it's not going to make you dumb. I mean, you're not going to be at your mental best while high, uh, but <laughs> so it, it's, it's not going to damage your brain, or at least that's, that's what we think right now. It's not going to damage your brain. But if you're using regularly as a teenager and there is there are growing numbers of teenagers who, who are using it. That health journal that I mentioned before, it shows that almost a quarter of all 12th graders use marijuana monthly in America. So that's, that's just a really bad idea. And, and, and again, so it's like youth pastors, they need to get that word out. They need to get that word out. Dealing with all of the issues related to drugs, I mean, marijuana is obviously the area that you focused on, but you mentioned the opioid crisis. 
Now that's something that here on the East Coast and in any rural area, my my brother-in-law is sheriff of a rural Ozark County, and he can tell you it's a nightmare. Uh, It's just a nightmare. Yeah, and most of those people didn't get hooked on opioids because they were looking to get wasted. No, a lot of them. A lot of them uh, had them prescribed during um, a sports injury or something mm-hmm. of that nature. And and uh, evidently, one of the tragic things about OxyContin compared to uh, morphine uh, mm-hmm. or other opioids is that it doesn't have the intoxicating aspect to it. So oh, one yeah. doesn't okay. realize that they're becoming mm-hmm. addicted until they are because they don't. I mean. You mentioned about surgery. I'd never had morphine until last year, whenever I had a gallbladder attack, and and that's the very that's my one and only time to experience morphine. Yeah, yeah, that's really amazing stuff. You know, it it, it you know thumbs up on its in, on its efficacy. It really it really yeah. is good. But I knew you know what was going on, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. for many of these um, who are who have become addicted through, like I said, some a back injury at work or sports injury in high school. The tragedy is, is there was no intent on their part yeah. to, be, to be addicted to opioids. As a, a pastor, taught a pastor a small church of 100 to 125 people. And when I look across my congregation, thinking if I'm, if I'm wondering who has the drug problem, it's not the young people. I mean, there, there may be a, a handful or a, one or two but it's the 50 to 80 year olds that I'm worried about right now, because they're the ones whose bodies are degenerating and they're, they're the ones who are being prescribed uh, difficult and dangerous medications. And most of them have no idea how it's affecting them. Yeah. And this is where I, I said that the medical, the legalization of medical marijuana might actually be helpful if only because it will cause us to start asking questions as Christians. Hey, just because this was prescribed to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that, it's going to be good for me long-term. We probably should have been thinking like Christians beforehand on on those. This has been very helpful. Dr. Miles, thank you so much. Dr. Todd Miles is professor of theology at Western Seminary, and his book is Cannabis and the Christian. And so if you'd like to know more about this, you can pick up his book uh, wherever the bookstores still may be in your neighborhood or otherwise on Amazon. Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Dr. Keithley, when I say the words, we the people, what comes to mind? Well, the Constitution, of course. And today, appropriately, is Constitution Day the day in which we recognize those delegates who signed the Constitution some 234 years ago. 
As we wrap up today's episode of Christ and Culture, our very own Nathaniel Williams will share with us what the Constitution is and why it matters. Nathaniel, take it away, brother. On September 17, 1787, delegates signed the Constitution of the United States of America. But arriving at a consensus on what the Constitution would be and say, well, that was no easy feat. Almost four months prior, on May 25th, the Philadelphia Convention, as it was then called, convened with George Washington presiding over the meeting. Fifty-five delegates gathered in these meetings, ranging from young, like 26-year-old Jonathan Dayton, to old, like 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin. Originally, this group intended to revise the Articles of Confederation, America's first, albeit imperfect, constitution. But a handful of delegates had other plans. For example, Alexander Hamilton delivered a six-hour speech advocating for a strong central government and an elective monarch. These guys had just fought a war to escape British monarchy, so you can imagine that Hamilton's plan wasn't well received. Instead, James Madison's plan ended up guiding the convention. Madison had written Virginia's state constitution, and his Virginia plan, as it was called, was the blueprint the delegates followed. And in the subsequent months, delegates juggled multiple personalities, all kinds of ideas, various interests, and other convictions as they crafted the document that became the U.S. Constitution. And what a feat this document is. The Constitution divides government into three separate branches. The legislative branch, which makes the laws. The executive branch, which carries out the laws. And the judicial branch, which interprets the laws. Plus, the Constitution prescribed a series of checks and balances between these three branches. Starting December 1787, the 13 states held specially elected state conventions to ratify the Constitution. Soon afterwards, they ratified the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, which clarified citizens' and states' rights. History would remember this meeting not as the Philadelphia Convention, but as the Constitutional Convention. And we commemorate September 17th as Constitution Day. Maybe you're wondering, what's the big deal? Why does the Constitution really matter? Why have an entire segment on Christ and culture about it? Well, first, the Constitution matters because it's about us. Our government really is we the people. Delegates didn't allocate power in a monarchy. They charged voters, people like you and me, with the power and responsibility to elect congressmen and presidents. Jesus calls us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Well, in a real sense, the Constitution makes us our own Caesar. We have to steward this responsibility well. Second, the Constitution is the standard. As a nation, we're not governed by the whims of a crowd. All laws and decisions must adhere to the Constitution's objective standard. The delegates did provide a means of changing the Constitution through amendments, but that process is slow and tedious for good reason. Finally, and most importantly, the Constitution matters because it tells our story. The Constitution is not a perfect document. When it was written, slavery was an enshrined right. Women didn't have the right to vote. But the Constitution and its amendments tell our country's story. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 15th Amendment gave African Americans the right to vote. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. The Constitution and its amendments tell the slow, sometimes painful story of America aspiring to live up to its founding ideals. John Adams described the Constitution as, quote, the greatest single effort of national deliberation the world has ever seen. And it's hard to disagree with him. So today on Constitution Day, go read the Constitution. 
More importantly, though, steward your responsibility as a citizen well, so together we can help America become who she aspires to be. Nathaniel Williams is the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast or share the podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.